Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And hey, Tracy, we have not done a historical manuscript episode in a while. I know we haven't. <laughs> uh, and the Voynich Manuscript episode that we did was very, very popular. But part of that is because uh, it is mysterious and people are constantly trying to decode and crack it. The one that we're talking about today comes with a little bit of mystery, but I would say less than the Voynich Manuscript. But unlike the Voynich Manuscript, we do know what this one says. Uh, and this episode is actually one that I started a while back. And then I just got derailed and wanted to work on something else for the podcast instead. And so I put it in a file that's like things that I have started but not finished. And then recently, our listener Chatelaine wrote in to suggest it. So I felt like it was time to dig it out of cold storage and give it another look. So we are going to talk about uh, what's called the Codex Gigas. And you'll hear different pronunciations. Tracy and I kind of combed the the internet looking for various pronunciations to find the right one. And we got so many different ones that it actually became downright comical as we would sit here and go, no, look, this dude says it this way. So we're just going to go with Gigas. We'll leave it there. So the name uh, Codex Gigas gives you a hint about one of the notable features of this book. It means giant book because this thing is truly enormous. Yeah, it is 89 by 49 centimeters. Uh, so for a, an alternate measurement, that's about 35 by 19 inches. So about a yard long. Uh, it contains 310 parchment leaves, which may be calfskin, plus two paper end leaves. Uh, it's said to weigh about as much as an average human. I've seen numbers like 165, 150, 180, so somewhere in there. Uh, the pages are arranged in two columns. There are 106 lines in each column. There are numbers on the pages, but these probably were added later on. The same hand that wrote out the foliation also included the date of 1561, which is way after the book was written. And the codex is bound in leather-covered wood. The manuscript was rebound in 1819, and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. But based on the notes at the time, the current wooden boards that are used in its binding are the originals. Uh, notations around that rebinding suggest that the cover board had a split down the center, which had to be repaired. And that may have been the impetus to have it rebound at that point. There are also metal pieces at the corners of the cover. And some of these appear to be replacements of earlier adornments. And there are several long sections of text in the Codex Gigas. The first is the Old Testament. The next is the Antiquities, written by Flavius Josephus of the first century. The third text, which is also by Flavius Josephus, is the Jewish War. Next is an Encyclopedia of the Middle Ages, which was written uh, by St. Isidore of Sevilla of Spain in the sixth century. And after the Encyclopedia is a section on medical information. And then there is the New Testament. The texts of the Old and New Testaments are what's known as the Vulgate version with two notable exceptions. The Acts of the Apostles and the Book of Revelation are both from an earlier biblical translation, the Vetus Latina. And the last long section of the book is the Chronicle of Bohemia, which is the first history of Bohemia that we have on record. And this was written by Cosmas of Prague, who lived from 1045 to 1125 approximately. Because this is the first Bohemian history, it's a really significant work. In addition to all of that other stuff, there are several short pieces in the book as well. One is written on penitence, one on exorcising demons, and there's a calendar that lists saints and famed Bohemians commemorated on various saints' days. 
There was also at some point a guide to monastic life in this big tome called The Rule of St. Benedict. But this portion has been removed. The leaves have actually been cut out of the codex. It's normal for medieval manuscripts to have illustrations all through, and this is also true of the codex. One is a simple portrait of the writer Josephus. There are also pictures of heaven and earth contained within circular frames at the beginning of the book of Genesis. There are 57 initial letters in the text of the Codex that are colorful and feature these vines spindling off of them. And they appear at the beginning of each book of the Bible and also at the start of the Chronicle of Bohemia, which was written, as we said, by Cosmos. And this is important to note because it indicates the pride and importance placed on this history of Bohemia. The vines that are stylistically consistent throughout the illustrated letters appear to be acanthus, and they are depicted as growing in spirals around and in and out from the letters themselves. On some of the letters, there are tiny animals, such as birds, that can be seen tucked in around the vines. They're pretty, these are pretty charming. The eye that opens the book of Esther features a squirrel on top of it, and it's eating a nut. It's so cute. Uh, I almost feel slightly guilty referring to this, you know, important medieval tome by going, it's so cute, but the squirrel's very cute. The animals are darling. Yeah, there are a lot of, like, medieval illuminations that that lend themselves to either cute or comical interpretations. There are some great blog posts and tumblers and things floating around about various little charming, cute, adorable segments of of greater (laughs) medieval illuminations. Yeah, all of these little uh, details are just, they're super charming. Uh, one of only two full-page pictures in the book is a depiction of heavenly Jerusalem. And this features two tall towers on either side of the page and a foundation wall at their bases, which appears to be made of stone. And there are multiple smaller structures that are stacked in this stylistic way to represent a dense city. And opposite this illustration is what's perhaps become the most famous attribute of the Codex Gigas, other than its massive size, which is an illustration of the devil. The portrait of the devil is framed in exactly the same manner as the image of heavenly Jerusalem. Similar towers to the ones in the Jerusalem painting are featured on either side of this full-body painting of the devil. The devil is depicted in what looks like a jumping position, with his bent legs tucked up partially underneath him. He has a greenish-blue face and spectacular red and yellow talons coming out from his fingers and toes. And this image of the devil is so eye-catching that it has uh, actually earned the book the nickname The Devil's Bible. And as you may suspect, this moniker has led to some sensationalism around it. Yeah, when we were when we were doing our looking into how to say the name, I saw possibly the most sensationalized historical <laughs> TV special I've ever seen. And I'm not even going to say what network it was from. <laughs> there have been a few, so it's not, there's not one, one guilty party on that one. The vast majority of the codex was written in a medieval script called the Carolingian Minuscule. The style came into being in the 9th century, and it was popular through the 12th century. Then it kind of fell out of favor until it was revived in the 15th century. And one of the more fascinating aspects of this book is that researchers who have studied it for many, many years have come to the conclusion that one single scribe wrote and embellished the entire book. And it appears that the person who wrote out this text was very well trained, but had developed a pretty unique style that makes the work distinctive. Uh, And some of the pieces that I read, they've said, like, we would know if we saw this work, this person's work anywhere else. 
However, this is the only manuscript that's known to have been the work of this person. This is pretty mysterious, really. We have no evidence at all of the works on which this scribe would have trained. It's estimated that a medieval scribe would average roughly a 100 lines a day. And so factoring in the careful ruling on each text page and the text itself, the decoration pieces, all of that, it's um, it's estimated that this work would have taken between 10 and 20 years to complete at an absolute minimum. Longer estimates suggest that it could have been the work of a lifetime. Yeah, you'll see different sort of breakdowns of how people estimate uh, how this would go. And they'll say, like, you'll see five years sometimes, but usually that is qualified as just to write the text out. That doesn't include the the marking the pages with the ruling first and doing all the other things and kind of designing it and pre planning how it was all going to be laid out because this isn't haphazard at all. It really is a very well designed and, and laid out book. Uh, the five years is usually just for the writing and then they add in all of the illustrations and that's how they usually get somewhere between 10 and 20 years is the minimum amount. Uh, because of this single scribe fact and the nickname of the devil's Bible, as I said, there have been some interesting theories around the codex and its creation and there have been some variations. Uh, one of the most popular involves the idea that a monk sold his soul to the devil to gain the time needed to complete the work. But that's kind of a newer variation. Uh, one version of that theme hints at a disgraced monk that's locked away to do the work as a sort of penance. Like he says he will do it in one night. And according to this legend, he did so in a single night, but he required the assistance of the devil himself to do it. Uh, and so he kind of made a deal with the devil that way so that he could achieve this ridiculously lofty goal he had set and claimed he would achieve. That version actually traces all the way back to medieval times. That's not a modern invention around this book. That story has been going on for hundreds of years. So very early in the book's life, it had some crazy uh, drama attached to it. Yeah, well, it's it's a little odd to me that there is this this drama because there were like some really outward expressions of of religious piety in the in the medieval period like this is when there would be people who literally walled themselves up into a tiny tiny cloister in the walls of a church and so spending 10 to 20 years minimum of your life in a pious writing of a of a text does not strike me as that odd in that context so it's funny to me that there are so many descriptions of what might have what might have happened. Yeah, and I think a lot of that kind of just comes from the the, the portrait of the devil and sort of the uh, the largeness. I think it was just sort of a uh, really unique book from the get-go, and so people naturally kind of built up stories around it. Yeah, one of these weird stories is that the manuscript is written on the hide of 160 donkeys and that there are satanic images throughout. But this similar to the one about selling your soul to the devil also pretty sensationalized. Yeah, <laughs> there are, um, again, I, I didn't use it as one of my sources. I watched a little bit of another kind of very sensational documentary where they were saying, never in any other Bible have there been images of demons and talk of this sort of exorcism. And I'm like, uh, it's all one big religious text that's sort of you know, the the sort of exorcism stuff does not seem out of place when you consider what this was. <laughs> so, 
It's kind of, you know, again, those are sensationalized. Uh, but before we get to uh, our next section, which is going to talk about sort of the journey that this codex has been on throughout its 800 year or so life. Uh, do you want to pause for a word from a sponsor? Let's do that. All righty. That sponsor today is Squarespace, which is this easy to use, intuitive drag and drop way to make your own website. So you do not need to learn how to code. We have nothing against learning, but sometimes you just want to get something done. Yeah, it takes a little time to learn to code and maybe you want your website right now. Yeah. They also have at Squarespace 24-7 customer support, which is a big one in my book. I, I have some services where there it's more like eight to five support. This is no 24-7. And there's also email support and live chat and they are there 24 hours a day seven days a week, all to help you get some beautiful designs for your website. So your content is really the focus. You know, there are some website services where it's great if you want to just show people pictures or maybe if you just want to have a blog. They actually have commerce options. Any plan you can get from Squarespace is going to have commerce options from hosting a whole store to just taking donations for your blog or video series that you're working on. Uh, and if you need a logo for that series or whatever it is that you're working on, there is an easy logo creator. So you can get a quality logo for your website or company. And it is free for Squarespace customers. You know what I love? What? All devices. All devices the, is so important. The sites are optimized to look good on smartphones, tablets, computers. That's not always the case. And we've all had that moment where we look at something on our phone and the site is just a janky mess. Yeah. Squarespace helps you with that. You have to zoom and zoom and zoom before you can read the text. Yeah. Uh, we're laughing at ourselves in a way. We, we, <laughs> we've just rolled out those kinds of things on our own website, which is great. Uh, so you can try Squarespace risk-free. Just go to www.squarespace.com slash history. You will get a free 14-day trial with no credit card necessary. One more time, no credit card is necessary. If you like what you see, you like what you get, it costs as little as $8 a month, and it includes a free domain name if you sign up for a whole year. So also, if you use offer code history, you will get 10% off your first purchase. It is all of that awesome stuff at squarespace.com slash history. So uh, to talk about sort of the history of where this book has been and, and where this manuscript has traveled, uh, the Codex Gigas has been dated as likely being written between 1204 and 1230. And this dating range is based on a couple of pieces of information. So first is the appearance of uh, the Bohemian Saint Procopius. And Procopius appears on the calendar segment of the text, and he wasn't canonized until 1204. So we know that's the earliest possible date that this could have been started. On the other end of the timeline is the death of Bishop Andreas of Prague. And that's mentioned in the Codex as well. And uh, he died in 1223. The death of Bohemian King Ottokar I is not listed. He died in 1230. So it's believed that the manuscript was finished sometime between those two notable deaths. And the Codex was written in Bohemia, uh, as re- evidenced by the fact that the Chronicle of Bohemia and the history of it... Uh, and the calendar's listing of notable Czech figures. So those are the clues that that was the origin point. Uh, we've had some episodes about books that were really notable, but they sat kind of in an unknown, unappreciated corner for a long time until someone happened upon them. Not the case with this one. Almost from the beginning of its life, the Codex Gigas was recognized as a marvel, and it represented the knowledge of the Benedictine order in Bohemia. 
There is a note in the Codex which indicates that the book was first kept in the Bohemian Benedictine Monastery at Podlazic, which I am probably butchering and I apologize. Uh, this has led to some, some conclusions that the book must have been written there. But if it was, it would have been even more of a marvel, really, because there is no evidence that that monastery ever produced another medieval manuscript. So it would have been this random outlier that kind of appeared out of nowhere. One monk who's often named as the likely scribe for this book is the is Herman the Recluse. Another is Sobislaus, which is written in one of the book's margins as part of a prayer to the Virgin Mary. But the writing of that note differs a lot. It's pretty significant from the rest of the manuscript, so probably someone added that later. Regardless of who wrote it and whether or not it originated uh, at that particular monastery, in need of funds, uh, that Benedictine monastery pawned it to the Cistercian monastery at Sedlitz. In 1295, another Benedictine monastery at Brevnov took possession of the Codex via the work of an, ab- an abbot named Bavor, working on behalf of Bishop Gregory of Prague. There's actually some confusion on this point because Gregory did not become Bishop of Prague until the following year, but was clearly named in that position with the 1295 date. Yeah, there have been theories about why that could have been the case, and some just chalk it up to, oh, I'm sure whoever wrote that note just got the year wrong, but we don't really know. Uh, What we do know is a while later, in 1420, the monks at Brevnov had to evacuate their monastery when the Hussite War began. They went to Brumov, and apparently they took the book with them, and our evidence that we know that the book traveled there with them, uh, comes in the form of a letter written by a Mr. Johannes Frauenberg, who saw the book while he was visiting Brumov in 1477 and described it in a letter to someone else. So we know it was there at that point. In the 1500s, it became customary for visitors to the Brumov Monastery to enter their names into the Codex. So it turned into kind of a guest book and historical record. For example, we know that Ferdinand I, King of Bohemia, stayed at the monastery when traveling to Prague because his visit was recorded in the Codex. And Rudolf II, uh, Holy Roman Emperor and King of Bohemia, who we did an entire episode on a while back, took a great interest in the Codex. He was so fascinated by the book that he actually wanted to take it with him to Prague. And eventually, a deal was struck with Abbot Martin of the Brevnov monks, and with the prior of Brumov Monastery overseeing things, the book was handed over to Rudolf II as a loan. The massive volume headed to Prague on March 4th, 1594, and it reached the royal, royal household there sometime shortly after March 16th. Along the way, starts and stops were noted, and people signed it as it passed through their towns. Uh, Rudolf II's secretary and other acquaintances studied the manuscript with great interest. Uh, you may recall from our episode on Rudolf II that he was into the occult. So anything with even a minor whiff of supernatural intrigue was hugely exciting to him. Uh, in the end, Rudolf II was a little bit of a weasel in this loan deal. He never returned the book to the monks. Instead, he had it cataloged as one of his many treasures. And the entry that details it as part of Rudolf II's collection includes this mention of the devil having worked on it. So that sort of furthered this rumor about its origin point. Uh, And before we get to sort of where it ends up and stays for quite some time, do you want to have another word from a sponsor? Yes, I do. So, you know, that 
wonderful thing about living in the digital age where sometimes you can get stuff done really quickly just clicking around with your mouse and typing. Mm-hmm. Now you can do that with your mailing and shipping. You don't have to leave your desk. Thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com basically turns your PC or your Mac into your own personal post office. That means it will never close unless you have some weird personal life hours where you don't exist during certain parts of the day. (laughs) Uh, So super duper convenient. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and your printer. And then you just hand that parcel off to your mail carrier. He or she will take it out into the world and get it where it needs to go. And you don't have to mess with the post office ever again. Right now, you can use our promo code, which is STUFF, to get a special offer. And that is going to get you a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer. So what you get with that is a digital scale that's going to calculate your exact postage for letters and packages and up to $55 worth of free postage, which is not an insignificant amount of postage. Nope. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com, and enter STUFF. So... Uh, where we left off, Rudolph II had kind of decided that the Codex Gigas was his, and he had it uh, entered into his collection catalog. And near the end of the Thirty Years' War, which took place between the Protestants and the Catholics, uh, we talked about that in some other episodes as well, Prague was invaded by Swedish forces on July 16th of 1648, and the treasures of Prague were looted, and that included the Codex Gigas. Uh, Rudolph II was no longer in power at that point, but his huge collection was still part of, you know, sort of Prague's treasures. Swedish forces moved really quickly to inventory and pack up all the items they had taken because anything that hadn't been carted away by the end of the war was going to have to be returned to its rightful home. So Christina of Sweden, who we've had a previous episode on, had her men ship all the goods they could to the Baltic coast. Yeah, she just wanted them to get everything out of Prague as quickly as possible because she wanted to keep all those spoils. Uh, and the Codex, along with many other items, spent the winter of 1648-1649 in the fortress at Domitz after the war ended in October of 1648. And this, along with the rest of the booty, finally reached Stockholm in May of 1649. When Christina's librarian cataloged the many books taken from Prague, the Codex Gigas was the first item on the list. But surprisingly, when Christina abdicated, took many of her books with her, the Codex was left behind and remained at the castle. Yeah, we don't know why, if it was just because it was large and unwieldy, although she would have had a huge, you know, uh, presumably, considering all of the other things she took with her, she would have had things that could carry something that size, but we don't know why she left it behind. Yeah. She took a lot of art with her, so... Yes. Uh In 1697, the castle in Stockholm had a fire, which could have been disastrous and it could have wiped out the record of the Codex forever, except it was saved because somebody hucked it out a window to get it away from the fire. Uh, The manuscript, and in some versions of the tale that are not substantiated, a person below, uh, were damaged by this desperate rescue effort. And after the fire, the manuscript was recataloged again and kept in the Royal Library, and the custom of visitors signing it continued. In 1792, Joseph Dabrowski of Prague's Royal Society of Sciences visited Stockholm, and he saw the Codex while researching possible items of Czech significance in Sweden. He published the first really detailed report on the manuscript. A comprehensive Swedish account of the manuscript was written in 1811 by Lorenzo Hammerskold. 
throughout the years since these two works, many historians and theologians have studied and written about the manuscript at length. Yeah, those are usually the two instances where it stops being about this may have been about the devil. This is, you know, it's it's not so much any of the legends around it. And they really kind of just do a detailed analysis. They write out how the script was written. They write out, you know, details about the sizing and the ruling and possible meanings of things. But those are really the big two that they uh, that are often referenced as like when it really became something that was significantly documented and recorded. And we mentioned earlier in the podcast that the book was rebound and repaired in the early 1800s. And the man who did that work was named Samuel Sandman, and he was paid a total of 78 Riksdaler for the job. Uh, a copy of his invoice is kept in the Royal Library of Sweden. And there's a sort of charming comparison in the notes on the National Library of Sweden's site about this book, uh, about the money that Sandman was paid for his work on the Codex. And it states, quote, this is difficult to relate to modern currency, but in 1820, a cow could cost 45 Riksdaler, and this gives some idea of the value of Sandman's work. I love that it's measured in how much cows would cost. Yeah. <laughs> because of the enormous size of the Codex, it would seem like an unwieldy thing to actually study or read. But there's evidence that the so-called Devil's Bible did see some practical use. We know that it would have been normal for both the Old and New Testament to have been read daily in a monastery, and it stands to reason that the missing pages of the Rule of St. Benedict would have had practical application as well. And it was also common for Benedictine monks to care for the sick. Uh, There are actually several Benedictine monasteries throughout Europe that have been recognized for their medical knowledge and their teaching throughout the centuries. So the medical texts in the Codex may have had very practical uses in those endeavors. There are also some actual indications of use, so we don't have to depend on the presumption of the book's importance in the context of normal monastic pursuits. In the margins of the manuscript at various points of interest is the Latin word nota in a different script than the scribe used. Several 13th century prayers are also written in the margins. And there are also uh, musical notations and notes about songs that would normally accompany a mass that have been kind of jotted at the bottoms of various pages of the calendar. So we know people were actually using this and touching it and making notes in it like they would almost any other book. While the Codex Gigas has been on display in both New York and Berlin, it, in 2007 it went home to Prague for a little while. The largest medieval manuscript we know of was loaned to the Czech Republic by Sweden to be displayed from September 20th, 2007, until January 6, 2008. And it drew pretty huge crowds, uh, despite the fact that it was kind of limited in how you could see it. Uh, only 60 people per hour could be admitted to the room where the book was displayed, and visitors were only allowed to stay for 10 minutes each to catch a glimpse of the, the book, which was in its specially designed case. So obviously people could not interact with it. Uh, but what's very sort of telling is the book... Uh, was opened to one particular page for display. And of course, that was where uh, on the one side is the illustration on the left of heavenly Jerusalem. And on the other is the devil, of course. So that is the Codex Gigas. Do you also have listener mail? I suppose so. I absolutely do. Uh, this is from our listener, Miles. Uh, and it is about our narcolepsy episode. And he wrote this one, only the first one 
had aired, uh, and he says, thank you for producing an episode dedicated to narcolepsy. I'm a 28-year-old male in Melbourne, Australia, who was diagnosed with the condition plus cataplexy four years ago. My symptoms started with my face feeling funny and a faintness coming over me whilst laughing. I spent a week in hospital after collapsing in the bush after an attack. After many tests, I was sent home and told I was depressed. I recall one doctor being annoyed at me for constantly falling asleep whilst they were trying to monitor my brain for epilepsy. Refusing to accept that diagnosis, I turned to Google and I correctly diagnosed myself. I have an excellent specialist who I keep in touch with and I manage the condition as best I can. Funnily, I became a podcast history stuff addict as a result of this condition as I find that listening to something interesting keeps my brain alert while I work on my computer all day. Before being diagnosed, I was going totally crazy. I was like a drunk lunatic with a temper all the time and it's a miracle that my partner Jane stayed with me. While I get by with narcolepsy, it's a real drag. It's impossible to convey to people the feeling of a sleep attack. And I find the hardest thing about being narcoleptic is that very few people understand the severity of the condition and how consistent it is. Not an hour passes without me having to think about what I'm eating and while when I'll be sleeping. Being upbeat, thinking ahead, and getting to work are the hardest things. Looking forward to part two. Thank you so much, Miles, because I feel like this is an insight into it that like we could never provide. We can do all the research we can. Uh, and even throughout uh, Tracy and I recording today, I have my computer in front of me, and I have seen a couple of other emails popping up with the notifications in the corner about the narcolepsy episode. And one I opened during a break, and it, it was a, another person kind of discussing how hard it is to live with. So I'm very thankful that we have kind of some some additional insight to inform that those podcast episodes and kind of what it's really like. So thank you so much, Miles. I really do appreciate you sharing your story with us. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also hook up with us on Twitter at Missed in History and on Facebook.com slash Missed in History. We're on Tumblr at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash Missed in History. This Codex episode is another one that I look forward to pinning, pinning, pinning. Uh, you can also visit us at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com if you would like some cool Mist in History merchandise like t-shirts and bags, etc. If you would like to research a little bit more about what we talked about today, you could go to our parent site, House of Works, type in the word Codex into the search term, and you will get an article called Top 10 Rare Books, which will talk about some other codexes. Uh, I don't know if that's the correct way to pluralize that. But you should go visit it and read that article. You can also visit us at our home on the web, which is mistinhistory.com, where you will find our entire back catalog of episodes. There are uh, show notes for any of the episodes in the last couple of years. We also have the occasional blog post. So come and visit us there at mistinhistory.com and visit our parent company, howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 